I want to encourage you uh, in one thing before I climb into the sermon. Um, Clint pointed out a little book that we have out there on the table, a little Advent book, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Uh, I announced that last Sunday. I was surprised to see yesterday I was in the building. I was surprised to still see a stack there. And what it made me think about is something that Erin Adele mentioned in our staff meeting week before last. She said that maybe it's an American thing or Western thing or maybe it's just a human thing that we're sort of all or none kind of folk. And if we haven't started off in Advent, we might have the temptation to not do anything in Advent. That here on the 14th, we might think, well, we really didn't start this program, so maybe we'll get it next year. And then the next however many days left of this month comes and goes without really an intentional significant engagement. So I encourage you to not fall prey to that, whether it's a human thing or an American thing, to grab one of those books. It's not your only resource out there, but it's a sweet one, and it's one that's been tested, that people have read and have, and I can encourage you, will be time really well spent. I would be surprised. I'm hoping there's not any of those left today. And I'm hoping that those of you that didn't get one uh, will grab something, if not a cop- another copy of that, will grab something and climb into the rest of this month being intentional about engaging and enjoying Christ. And that's where I wanted to go in preparation for this sermon, an introduction. Some of our messages are more linear and some of our messages are sort of making an argument, developing a thought with some application that you need to then go and do. Some ways that you very appropriately respond Those are good and appropriate sermons. The sermons that we're considering in December are not so much that. They're more just exposing who Jesus is. And as I prayed during our prayer just a moment ago, there are times for us to just sort of set aside our expectations and our needs. And I know there are many. There may be marital struggles. There may be physical health struggles, monetary family dynamics, things like that. I know you carry a lot of baggage in here on a Sunday morning, but I will promise you this. If you can set that baggage aside for 45 minutes to 50 minutes and just sit at the feet, I promise I see some smiles. I can do that. We've done it the last few weeks. I haven't heard any praise from anybody over that. And I'm expecting, there's, there's a thumbs up from Morrison. If you can set aside those expectations and those struggles, all be it, they're all being important and difficult. And just enjoy who Jesus is for the next 45 minutes or so. When you come back to those problems and struggles, they'll still be there, but you'll be in a different place. You'll have some different footing as you deal with those issues. So I encourage you, pray about that in these next few minutes as we climb into this. We're in Isaiah chapter 11, and you can go ahead and turn there this morning. I'll give you a little map of where I'm going to have you turn this morning. We don't have a lot of satellites. It's not a very um, complicated morning in terms of where we're going. Isaiah 11 is home base. I think this is the second sermon in 11 years that we've had from Isaiah, and the first one was last Sunday. It's a challenging book. I, I thought about it. I have one commentary set on my bookshelf. Most of books of the Bible have numerous, many, more than one commentary, and Isaiah have one. In fact, I asked another pastor if he had some commentaries on Isaiah. He's like, no, because <laughs> it's, it's not a real inviting book to preach from. It's one that's, health, that's, that's really handy to reference, but it's hard to preach from because you're preaching images. It's a book of images, but it's a beautiful book if you can immerse yourself in it. 
without thinking linear like Hebrews, there's not a linear argument. You climb into these images, and then when you climb out, you're going to find that you're, you've been equipped with something. You're going to find that you've seen something that you wouldn't have seen if, that you wouldn't have considered and observed had you not climbed into it. Isaiah as a whole is a vision of hope for sinners in the person and work of the Messiah. A vision of hope for sinners in the person and work of the Messiah. It was written about 700 years or so approximately before Jesus came, written by Isaiah, who was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. This morning, we're going to consider four images that will help us understand and appreciate what we have in the Messiah. It's going to be more than fact collecting today, ideally. Ideally, this is going to make for more potent worship as you go about the rest of this month enjoying the birth of our Savior. The whole passage has been read in total, but I'd like to do it again. I just want to saturate ourselves in this passage. And then we're going to break it down into four chunks. There's going to be four visions this morning. The last vision we'll have with our supper. Okay? Four visions and the last vision we'll have with our supper. If you want to make a little note about where we're going this morning, it'll be Isaiah 11, John 2, Matthew 5, and Numbers 21. Easy day. Isaiah 11. There shall, come forth from a, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. As we considered this last week, we realized this was written about 700 years before Jesus, and it was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, and is continuing to be fulfilled. As the kingdom has broken in, the kingdom is still coming to its fullness, because they're nicely represented by these Advent candles. The first one was lit last week. Over the course of each week, we're considering how this thing is developing and it's getting brighter and brighter and we are smack dab in the middle, 2,000 years or so in the middle of, we don't know time-wise in the middle, but smack dab in this fulfillment of what was prophesied by Isaiah that is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to consider this morning is that the Messiah, Messiah will be a fruitful shoot Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I'm going to admit to you and confess to you that my whole life I think I've been stumped by this passage. 
I worked real hard on that, 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 that thought there, and I'm expecting some. Stumped by this stump of Jesse shoot imagery. In fact, our family, weeks ago, when I guess uh, December 1st or so, we read a devotional or an Advent um, booklet that we didn't continue with because it, it was not really a good fit for us. But that first, first day was about the shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse. And it's really sort of a confusing image if you really unless some of you have done some study on it. What really brings it into focus is what's in front of it, and I've never really considered what's in front of it before this week. Look at verse 33 and 34 of chapter 10. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. In context, this shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse is only understood relative what's right in front of it. And what's right in front of it is a passage of scripture that's illustrating the strength and might of Assyria like a forest of terebinths. Some of you have been to the Pacific Northwest and seen the sequoias or the redwoods. It's many ways he's illustrating their strength and their might like this huge massive forest and one that he will bring to judgment and lop off their boughs and he will raise this forest, R-A-Z-E. In contrast, this is where we see in the backdrop of this massive, impressive in the eyes of the world forest of strength and power in the Assyrians is where we see this wee little unimpressive stump and this wee little shoot. That's only understood in light of the other. The beauty of this imagery as the Assyrians are represented as this mighty forest is that they will be destroyed as the embodiment of human evil and yet the hope of the world and the destruction of that forest will come through a wee and unimpressive shoot from a stump, no less. Think of the beauty of that. During the ice apocalypse last year, our, we had some Bradford pears in front of our house, and one of them sort of survived. It didn't survive enough for us not to go ahead and cut it down, but the other one absolutely was just destroyed. It just peeled like a banana, every limb. In fact, a bunch of deacons came by and hauled off all those limbs for me. But this thing, just it was just a big stump. And we're looking at that thing and convinced that it's dead. And in fact, we're so convinced that Luke got out there with his machete, convinced he's going to cut it down, and he cut a big chunk out of the side of it. So we're sure it's dead by that point. But then come spring, came a little bitty shoot out of the top of this thing. A little bitty Bradford pear shoot came out of the top of this thing. And it makes me think about how surprising that was. We thought it was dead, and yet there's this shoot. And that's the image here of who Christ is, He's an unlikely shoot that comes from what would have to be a supernatural thing for a stump to bear a shoot and then for that shoot to bear fruit. Had we let that Bradford pear live, we've since cut it down, but had we let it, yet let it live, it never would have borne any sort of fruit, not a fruit-bearing tree, I don't guess, but it would have never come back to beauty. But yet here we see a beautiful picture of a shoot coming from a stump It sounds like this unnatural, supernatural work of a river of people flowing upstream to the mountain that we considered last week. It's a supernatural thing that's taking place here 
because God is doing it. The beautiful imagery in this first verse, something that we can consider and should consider is very important for us as we are the fruit of this little shoot. We are the product here 2,000 years later, 2,700 years after Isaiah wrote these words. Here we sit, the fruit of this wee unimpressive shoot, born in Bethlehem, lived a short life, never traveled a a significant distance beyond where he was born. And here we are, fruit of that unimpressive shoot. A passage that we read last week just seems especially fitting for us to consider again this week. You can jot it down. I'm already there. You can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He didn't choose the forest of terebinths. He didn't choose the impressive Assyrians or the impressive Egyptians or the Babylonians. He didn't choose some impressive lot. God chose what is weak in the world to to shame the strong. He chose a stump and a shoot coming from that stump. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He does that so he can get all the glory. That's the way he works. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him, you are the fruit of that shoot. He did the work. He gets all the glory. And this fruit is made up of people that are not wise, made up of people that are not powerful, made up of people that are not noble for the most part. It's made up of people that for the most part are foolish, are low, and are despised, and are not. Paul is not in an effort to grow the Corinthian church by telling them they are those things. It's not exactly a good church growth plan for me to then recast those things to you and let you know you are those people. But the beauty is you are that fruit of that unimpressive shoot coming from that unimpressive stump from an unexpected place as a product of what the Messiah has done. That's something we celebrate each year. I told you right up front, we're not gonna be making much of you this morning. We're making much of what the Messiah has done. And we are the surprise fruit. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's the beauty that you're going to find when you connect to what you really are. Fruit, unlikely fruit from an unexpected place. You'll be have an opportunity to make much of the Lord. The second thing I want you to see this morning, the first thing is the Messiah will be a fruitful shoot. The second thing is the Messiah will be a righteous judge. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning considering this righteous judge. I want to look at verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and then the verse 5 independently. Look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Remember, we're talking about our Messiah here. And what we see here are three couplets. The first couplet is wisdom and understanding is something we see in our Messiah. Wisdom and understanding, some other passages you may want to jot down. 
that'll help bring into focus how important these things are in our Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13. Moses is sharing the story again of their movement from Egypt. And early on in the story, he's retelling the story here in Deuteronomy. It says in chapter 1, verse 13, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. It's a good thing to have in your leadership wise, understanding, and experienced men, and we have that in spades in our Messiah. Wisdom and understanding. In 1 Kings chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9, Solomon prays this prayer. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It's what leaders need, wisdom and understanding, and it's what wise kings pray for, wisdom and understanding, and we have these things in spades in our Messiah. When you connect some of this prophecy to some of the gospels, things begin to come in focus and you're no longer a parachuter, or at least you're an educated, informed parachuter. Luke chapter two, verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. If you're a parachuter, you're gonna read that passage and go, ah, that's nifty, he's, he's increasing in wisdom and stature. If you're reading as an informed parachuter, seeing it in light of Isaiah, then you go, yeah, he's doing what he's supposed to do, growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man because God promised through Isaiah that this Messiah would have wisdom and understanding. The next couplet is counsel and might. Job chapter 12, verse 13 says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. His wisdom and understanding are for leadership. His counsel and might are for the ability to see these plans through. The third couplet is knowledge and fear. Those things go together. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What I want you to see this morning, what I want us to enjoy just for a few minutes in this busy season this morning, if for just for a few minutes, is to enjoy that our Messiah is the total package. He is the complement, the full complement of every single important characteristic. He has wisdom and understanding. He has counsel and might. He has knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He is the total package. I remember reading back in Galatians chapter three, the fruit of the spirit years ago and thinking about how different people have different measures of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You never see anybody with all of those things but our Messiah has them all. Every last one of them, he has them in spades. He has the full complement of everything that we need to see in a Messiah. These sort of promises from Isaiah, they connect when we begin to look through the gospels and we see how he lived and how he moved 
and passages that are familiar to us, like Isaiah chapter 9, that you likely hear every Christmas season. In fact, it's written on that chalkboard right out there. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the total package. He's not deficient in anything, in anything. The beauty of this, too, of thinking about passages and the events that now come into focus like Christ's baptism, now coming into focus through this prophecy, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This brings new understanding. Passages like this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Yes, indeed, it happened at the Jordan for our benefit. Those times where God is speaking from heaven, some of those occasions, the passage will even say, the gospel writer will even say, this was not done for God's account or for Christ's account. It was done so that the people around us could understand and believe. And this is a witness, a front row seat to God speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and resting on the Son of Man as a fulfillment of this passage in in Isaiah chapter 11. Spirit resting on him and bringing wisdom and understanding and bringing counsel and might and bringing knowledge and fear. Look at this next verse, verse three. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This passage I will share with you has been, the, I, I think, the dearest passage to me of these 10 that I've prepared for this week. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. I want you to think a minute about a judge. I want you to realize that the best judge that's ever lived in the history of time has not been influenced by any degree. Let me, let me rephrase. The best judge in history was influenced to some degree by what he saw and what he heard. Imagine a judge that has two guys in front of him, separate accounts. One guy comes in looking like a hoodlum, and one guy comes in looking all clean cut. Both are guilty of the same crime. Both have the same history. You can't imagine for a moment that that judge won't somehow be influenced by what he is seeing. The only judge that's not going to be influenced in some way by what he sees will be a blind judge. But then the problem with a blind judge is he's going to be influenced by what he hears. Or maybe he may not be able to see a difference between two people, but he will likely be able to hear a difference. You know as well as I do that some people can smooth talk with the best of them. And then other people, not so much. The guy may not even be guilty, but he can't even really explain why he's not guilty. And the other guy could be guilty all day long, but he could smooth talk his way out of anything. Don't you like the thought of a judge, a Messiah, who will not judge influenced by what he sees or what he hears? I like that thought. I like that thought too, because he's not about looking for the best and the brightest. He's not gonna give a favorable account for the beauties and then a terrible, hard judgment for the uglies or give a favorable account for the smart and smooth talking, and then an unfavorable account 
for who, for those who can't talk real well, can't talk their way out of a jam. I'm thankful that this judge is not influenced by what he sees or what he hears. I want you to realize there's a name for what's going on in this passage, what he's not guilty of, and it's called the fear of man. And every single one of us has some measure of the fear of man. And likely that changes from day to day and week to week and year to year. Sometimes you're more vulnerable to what other people think. Sometimes you're more uh, influenced by what you're seeing in others or what you're hearing from others. But our Savior, our Messiah, is not influenced by those things at all. I've recommended before a book. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small, and I'm going to recommend it again this morning. Likely some of you have read I know some of you have read it because I've heard from those of you who've read it, and you likely have passed that book off to other people who may not have read it yet. Here's that next reminder for you. It's worth the read because we're all guilty of it at times, of listening too closely to what people think or say or caring too much about what they look like or what they're saying. But our Messiah is not influenced by those things. He's not influenced by a fear of man. Instead, he's influenced by a fear of the Lord. That is the fuel for his judgment. I'm thankful for that too. If you consider the passage we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that those that he chose are not wise, not powerful, not noble, that were foolish, weak, low, and those who actually are not. I'm thankful for a judge that's not influenced by those things because you got to know 700 years before Christ came that those judges were influenced by those things. Thankful for a Messiah that's not influenced by what he sees. That's serious good news for the non-beautiful. Serious good news for the non-smooth talking. Our Messiah is influenced only by the fear of the Lord. John chapter 2, you can go ahead and flip over to that. I want to show you something. that A treat when we were in John years ago, this would have been some time ago in John chapter 2, He's just performed his first miracle. He's cleansed the temple. And here at the end of chapter two is a treat for you. I mean a treat. Beginning in verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. In this passage, there's a Greek play on words here that's sort of concealed because it's not the same root word in the English. But this word, believe and entrust, are the same Greek word, root words. So it's a play on words. In many ways, what he's saying here is many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his his part didn't believe back in them. Many believed in him, but he didn't believe back in them because he knew what was in a man. There are accounts where Jesus is teaching and preaching in authority or with authority, and he's uninfluenced by whether he's talking to a Pharisee or whether he's talking to a poor person that has nothing. He is the same preacher, the same speaker in both contexts because he has not entrusted himself to man. Many believe in him, but he has not believed in them. Acts chapter 10 tells us that our God shows no partiality, and that's true of our Messiah, and we should be thankful for that. 
unless you're hoping for that. I don't want a, I want a impartial judge because partiality doesn't work out well for me. And I will promise you this, this is one, part, one portion of the sermon where I can speak to something that will help you and bless you, that is application for you. I shared at the beginning of the sermon, we're holding up Christ in his work, but here's a nice application point. The longer you walk with Christ, the less influenced you will be by what you see and hear from others. The longer you walk with Christ, the less influenced you will be by what others may think or say about you, whether good or bad. The longer you walk with Christ, the less concerned you will be about man's praise, the less influenced you'll be by man's praise. You'll appreciate it when it comes, but you won't hunger for it. It won't be the wind underneath your wings. It has been for me at times, I'm gonna confess to you, early in this ministry, I was wildly influenced by praise or criticism in both directions. And it's less so every year that goes by. And it's not an I don't care factor. It's I'm just not as fearful of you as I used to be. Frankly, and hopefully, as you walk with Christ and spend more time worshiping him, you're more fearful of God than you are of man. When praise comes, you'll appreciate it when it comes, but you won't hunger for it. And the flip side of that, you'll be less influenced by man's criticism. If you're wise, you will listen to your critics. If you're paying attention, you will listen to your critics because you may hear something that you needed to hear. Someone might be about the work of speck removal or potentially even log removal. So you need to pay attention to your criticism or to your critics, but you won't be destroyed by your critics and you won't be defensive when you think you hear criticism from someone for the fear of the Lord will rule in you more than the fear of man. The longer you walk with Christ, the more you're going to look like him. The more you're going to live like him. You'll be growing in Christ. So what your eyes see and what your ears hear will influence you less and less. That's good news for me. I need to know that. Sometimes it's a roller coaster. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11 and we'll continue in verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. We know he's a judge that does not fear man, but instead is influenced by righteousness alone. He is an equitable judge for the poor and the meek. 700 years before Jesus, the people of God, they had a significant problem going on, and that problem was they weren't caring for the poor and the needy, and they certainly weren't treating them equitably. The judges didn't judge with equity that's not influenced by what they're seeing. So that's a problem for them. And the kingdom here, it seems, is being promised to, or a promised, or an, an equitable judgment is being promised to the poor and the meek. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We've considered this passage a couple times. I think we considered it last week fittingly, because here he preaches from the Mount, as was promised in Isaiah chapter 2 last week. And notice what he's preaching here in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, something that I want to connect here, I have a commentator, this one commentator that I have for my one Isaiah commentary. This guy's name is Young. This is what he said. The poor serve as a fitting symbol for all the poor in spirit. Those who have laid aside their haughtiness and lofty dispositions are truly humbled by a conviction of their spiritual poverty before God. I was talking with Christy this week, just kind of talking through the sermon in this Isaiah passage, and we were talking about poverty. And I'm afraid that at least in my case, and likely in your case, we don't really know what poverty looks like. And I would be surprised. Some of you may consider yourself poor because I hear people say that at times, we're so poor. You probably slept in a bed last night. You probably had breakfast or at least had the opportunity to, I know some of you aren't breakfast eaters. You really should. That's a good, it's an important meal. But you probably had access to it at least. I don't think we really know what real poverty is. I just joined back up on Facebook this last week just because I wanted to connect with some of my Marine buddies from years ago. And some of these guys posted a bunch of pictures from my time in Somalia. And I think the years had worn off how terrible that experience was. And I'll tell you too, when you're in a setting like that, there's some coping mechanisms that you don't even realize are taking place to where you don't really have to deal with what you're seeing. But coming back and seeing these pictures again years later, 20-something, 22 years later, made you remember what real poverty looks like. You don't have to go to Somalia either. You don't have to go to Ghana, although you're sure to see poverty there. You're likely going to see some poverty here in our area. Now, the problem is a lot of that poverty may have to do with someone being addicted to drugs or alcohol. And mom or dad spending all the family's money on drugs or alcohol, but they still likely have kids. The kids haven't spent the money but the kids are poor and the kids are likely going to grow up and they're going to beget more poverty. We have poverty right here in our context, or you can go on the other side of the world to see poverty, but likely none of us is really experiencing it. And here's the problem. When we don't really experience it, we don't have that visual aid of our spiritual condition before a God who is rich in holiness. The poor serve as a fitting symbol for the poor in spirit, if that's true, how close do you get to poverty? Aside from blessing them with things, aside from caring for those, you might do some of that around Christmas. How close do you really get to it? I thought of, I've, I've kind of come under con- conviction. I shared with Christy when I was a little kid. My dad took me uh, to places where I had an up close and personal front row seat to poverty. He went to high school with a guy named Billy Mills, who was MVP of the football team. Uh, BMOC, I mean, big man on campus, for those of you guys don't, know, guys don't know what that stands for. This guy was, in high school, he was the man. But he started drinking when he was a senior in high school, and then he became an alcoholic, and he lost everything. He never had anything to, much to lose. He just became a street drunk. Well, he ended up having a, uh, I don't know if he was actually married to this lady, but he had uh, a gal and had a couple of kids, 
And my dad took it on himself to minister to Billy Mills and his family. And he took me along for a lot of that. And I remember going over to his house and seeing that this is what poverty looks like. Little kids that were dirty, that hadn't bathed in weeks, that had clothes that were falling off their bodies, that may or may not have eaten in the last couple of days. I had a front row seat to poverty, so I know, I have some sense what spiritual poverty may look like. And I've come under serious conviction that I haven't taken my kids to see that. To both minister to that and to have a front row seat to the visual aid of our spiritual condition before a God who is rich in holiness. And I hope to remedy that as a shepherd of my family and as a father to some kids that I want to see what poverty, I want them to see what poverty looks like so they can understand our condition before God. Our Messiah came to save those who are in spirit like the truly poor are in flesh. Our Messiah came to save those who are in spirit like the truly poor are in flesh. Before a God who is rich in holiness, we are destitute. We are poor. But yet our Messiah judges rightly for those poor in spirit and those meek. And they, in fact, according to his promises from the mount, the kingdom is for those folk. It's good news. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. These images here for this belt, this waist belt and the belt of his loins are the images of what a warrior would wear in going into battle. What's pictured here is a judge who will execute judgment because he's dressed for it. We can expect that from our Messiah. Impartial judgment a judgment that is sure, like a warrior doing battle. Next image is not so much about our Messiah as much as it is about what our Messiah will achieve. Beginning in verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What seems to be described here is this otherworldly peace, this supernatural peace that our world likely has only known, that surely has only known before the fall. He's talking about what he's describing here is a peace like Eden. We don't really have any details of what happened before the fall because it surely didn't take long. Some people think it was on day seven or day eight that the fall happened. We don't have a whole lot of details pre-fall. We have the image of Adam naming the animals in this cool environment, what that must have been like. You know, it's cool. The bear walks by and you give him a pat on the head. That's a bear. I bet he'd make a great pillow. Just imagine that pre-fall context. We don't know a whole lot about what it was like, but we do know this. We know there was no death, and where there's no death, there were no predators. So the wolf and the lamb and the leopard, excuse me, the wolf and the leopard and the bear and the lion had to have a different reputation, albeit short-lived. Very different reputation. 
But then came Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, and everybody's job changed. Not just Adam and Eve's, but even the jobs of the critters changed. Some chase and some run. Some eat and some hide. But the Messiah's work is so effective and his judgment is so sure that it brings peace like pre-fall Eden. So the wolf and the leopard and the lion and the bear will be out of work yet again. And their menu is going to change. They're going to be vegans. It's crazy to think about. Be eaten with the, the lamb and the cow. And the enmity even between man and snake will be reconciled. His work is so profound that cobras will be an infant's pet and adders will be a toddler's pet. It's so profound. But something I want you to see here is this peace, this Eden-like peace only comes via judgment. Sometimes we have this thought about peace that is just the absence of conflict and the absence of any sort of difficult thing that this peaceful environment, not realizing that peace here is earned via judgment. You see where passages six through nine fall after this belt-wearing warrior judge has done his work. That's where we find that Eden-like peace. This, this verses six through nine is less about the animal kingdom than it is about what's going on in their context. Remember the Assyrians right there before in verses 10, chapter 10, verse 33 and 34? It's less about the animal kingdom as it is about the predator-like kingdoms and empires that would ultimately be defanged through the work of the Messiah. They will eventually be as harmless as a cow or a lamb or a young goat. This image is hard for us to appreciate for we haven't experienced tyranny. It occurred to me that just as hard as it is for us to climb into the realities of poverty, it's, just, it's as hard, equally hard for us to climb into the realities of tyranny. And what it would be like from day to day and week to week, wondering who's going to invade your country next and who's going to rip you from your home next. It's hard for us to appreciate these things because we haven't experienced invasion our cities haven't been under siege, and we haven't looked to the most tender of, among us for dinner. That's what happened in their day, eventually, when siege came. Last Sunday night, we had a meeting where we were talking about church planting. Some of the church leadership met with some potential church planters, and one of those guys is working with a ministry that works with the persecuted church worldwide. And I don't know if this is an exact quote, but it's close enough to what he said. He said, what we fail to realize is our Bibles were written by people under persecution to people under persecution. They were written by people who were suffering to people who were suffering under an empire or under some sort of thing that is really hard for us to even imagine. But if we could but taste the fear of who's going to invade next, if we could but for a moment imagine how difficult that context must have been, then we could appreciate what has been promised us in the Messiah. It's hard for us to appreciate because we haven't experienced poverty, we haven't experienced tyranny. Those promises were made that the Messiah would reconcile all that, and they're good promises, 
And we should climb into these stories and imagine what these things are like. And we should get close to our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are experiencing poverty or on the other side of town who are experiencing poverty. And we should climb into the stories of people who are experiencing persecution at the hands of evil, wicked people, praying for them, lifting them up, reading their stories as it will galvanize us to what's been promised us in the Messiah. We need those things. And shepherds of families, you need to escort your families to those things. I'm not doing a good job of that. I'm not doing it. I'm preparing to preach, and then I'm just showing up at home. I'm going to really be real honest with you. How many of y'all get your families to church, and then you just show up at home? Man, let's 2015. Let's do something a little bit different. Together, how about we escort our families to some of these dark, difficult, crazy, difficult environments? so that we'll be galvanized as the church, so our children will be galvanized as the church. So together, our worship will be more potent as we enjoy what we have in the Messiah. Turn to Numbers chapter 21. The last image I want you to see this morning is a banner or a signal for the nations. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 says, in that day, the root of Jesse, this Messiah we've been talking about this morning, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Numbers chapter 21 is just a passage that I feel like just beautifully illustrates what's being said here, what's being promised. This account here in Numbers chapter 21 would have happened seven or 800 years before Isaiah promised this would come in the personal work of the Messiah. But it's just a beautiful illustration. So let's climb into this illustration briefly. Chapter 21, verse four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea. This is the nation of Israel after they've been liberated from Egypt. At this point, they're being fed, they're being nourished, they're being given water. That's all context of what you're about to hear. They set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Now the context for this last point of this banner of the nations, the signal to the nations, is a meal context. And that's why I want us to have our supper connected to this image. It's a meal context. These guys are eating. They're eating food that's coming from the sky. God is providing for them. And yet here they are calling that food worthless. It's not enough. Imagine as if we were to gather on a Sunday morning and say, this isn't enough for us. What God has provided for us in the supper. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died and the people came to Moses and said we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us so Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten then when he sees it he shall live So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This passage just beautifully illustrates what's promised us in the Messiah 
For here we sit, the human problem is being snake bitten by sin and doomed to die. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All have been bitten by the snake. And the nations, though, can look to the signal, can look to the banner, can look to another old-fashioned word, the ensign that's been lifted up and find salvation. That's what was promised for us in the Messiah, and that's what we have in the Messiah. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 14 makes total sense in light of these sort of promises, in light of an illustration like that, in light of what's been promised us in Isaiah. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up like a signal, like a banner for the nations, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's what we have in our Messiah. John chapter 13, as he's heading into the cross... John chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, he takes us right back to this picture of being lifted up. John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth like a banner, like a signal, like an ensign, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Every week when we celebrate this supper, what we are celebrating is we are committing ourselves to agreeing together that this meal will be enough. That we won't be grumbling and complaining about worthless food, calling this worthless, but we will call this enough as we remember our banner lifted up. As we together with the nations look to our banner for life. Let me close in prayer and we'll distribute the elements and enjoy our signal for the peoples. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for these images that help us understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We're so thankful that he comes from an unlikely place, from an unexpected place, and that he bears fruit, and we're thankful that we are the fruit of that surprise work. God, we are thankful that he is a righteous judge that's not influenced by what he sees or what he hears. We're thankful that he is influenced only by a fear of you. God, I'm thankful too that this beautiful picture that he has been lifted up and that he's drawing the nations and that those who look to him can be and will be saved. God, together this morning as we take and eat, as we are satisfied in this meal that you've provided us, God, we look to the bronze serpent. We look to the snake that's been lifted up. We look to the son who bore our sin in our place. And we find life there and we enjoy these realities, especially today, what we have in our Messiah. God, we are thankful. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Let's distribute the elements.